This is Directional, a podcast about video games and the creative rebellion. Chantal Ryan and Jörg Tittle. Here we are again um, on my favorite day of any week, which is um, directional. And uh, and here I am with um, Chantal. Chantal, hello. Hello. I know you're going to ask me to introduce myself, so I'll get ahead of the game. I am Chantal Ryan, an anthropologist and director of the game studio. We have always lived in the forest, and I am here with Jörg Tito today and a very special guest. Yeah, I'm... And also, like, Chantal's actually not here with me at all. She's actually in Adelaide. Um, I'm spiritually and, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm in London, um, and Paul, our producer, Paul, who's a silent silent stringer of pulls, no, pull, puller of strings even, mm-hmm. uh, he's in Los Angeles very early and very grumpy probably over there, but we don't care because we don't have to look at him. And uh, I'm York and York Tittle, and I'm a writer, director, producer of games and films and other things, and I don't want to talk about myself because who wants to hear that kind of jazz? Um, we have a very, very special guest today, and I'm incredibly happy to have him on the show because I've been wanting to talk to this very special person for a while. And, he has. Uh, He's been talking about it quite a bit. So who is this? Why don't we just let this person say hello? Hello. Themselves. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Nitin Sony. It is actually a silent T would be better. Nitin Sony. It's really good to see you. Um, can you just say who you are for a second? Because it's more fun coming from you. Because you, you must have done this a thousand times and you'll do it better than me and and oh right i don't know i mean i'm a i'm a producer and composer and human being um citizen of the planet <laughs> yeah there you go it, well you are certainly one of the most remarkable um humans uh, composers and producers out there um i mean for those who don't know um Nitin has um been around for a while, worked with some of the greatest uh, musicians um, the world has known, whether it's in in the world of pop or rock or classical, um, has written incredible film scores, incredible game scores, um, has done solo albums, has uh, toured, has worked with ballets, has done pretty much everything under the sun that involves doing beautiful, soulful, intelligent, gorgeous, deeply human work. And so it's a pleasure to have you on. I much preferred your introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's funny, like on the show, like what we do is we basically just have a conversation and, um, with people who, uh, who come from incredible places, who, think very deeply about where we are right now as a species and as cultures and um, also about the politics around us and also really want to do something about it. And and whether they do it through their work or whether they use their work as a, as a platform or as a, as a means of, as a trampoline for others to sort of leap into thoughts and new directions, that's what we like to talk about. So... 
So yes, shall we do that? Sir, so I like to dig at the origins. Sir Nitin, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to music? Sure. Um, yeah, I started playing piano from a very young age, but then I was always listening to music even younger than that because my mum used to sing me Indian old songs as well, you know, that she she remembered from India. And uh, and then there was always music in the house. Uh, so I got into classical piano from the age of about five and then got into flamenco guitar um, when I was about eight um, and then <laughs> to playing blues and jazz. And then I was in a little jazz quartet when I was about 11 and played with some orchestras and then got into playing in bands, uh, also studied Indian classical music uh, nearby Gurdwara where they had, um, uh, where they had tabla lessons and sitar lessons. So I kind of studied a little bit of that, but, um, but yeah, I was just kind of always into music. My dad had a lot of different types of music playing in the house all the time. So it was a lot of Cuban music. There was a lot of flamenco. There was, um, he liked all the crooners, um, you know, Nat King Cole, I would listen to a great mm -hmm. deal. Um, you know, Miles Davis, I was a huge fan of from the age of eight. Um, so yeah, I mean, I listened a lot to a lot of different styles. Um, he also loved, yeah, he loved Cuban music and, uh, African music a great deal too. What is beautiful about your work is that it's both culturally and, uh, culturally authentic, if that makes sense. Um, you're not, and I'm not going to sort of badmouth Hans Zimmer necessarily, but for instance, you will see a film with, you know, set in a desert with brown people walking around and suddenly you hear, Aah! and then the drums get really bad and scary and creepy because, you know, aren't those really terrifying brown people coming out of the desert? And this kind of sort of language has been happening in sort of Hollywood for a while and it's kind of interesting and something that i would like to perhaps explore in the show is that how the power of music and the subliminal power also and the sort of uh, signals that it sends to an audience and how it can also uh, reinforce biases um is something that has been quite quite a big thing for me i i don't like the way um, when we travel to foreign places and to other cultures that is usually dictated by the sort of biases of usually a white, or in this case, a white German composer sort of uh, putting his sort of cliches onto it. And so there's, there's an authenticity to your music, first of all, because not only from your own background, but also clearly you are a deeply human individual who has tremendous empathy for other cultures and a deep understanding and curiosity for other musical styles, etc. Uh, so that's something that's always feel, feels really, really good. When I listen to your music, I'm like, wow, this is someone who actually is taking it, taking us somewhere and cares about people. And maybe that's the question is like that we, we, are, we are now in a world where people will no longer accept um, cultural appropriation. Um, uh, from actors, um, from writers and directors. But it's still, would you agree that it's still happening very much in music? It's a big, it's it's a very complicated uh, area that, because I mean, for example, I remember being with um, Aboriginal Australians in Arnhem Land and, um, and they didn't like it when people outside of their clan or outside of their culture um, played what they call the deep, 
the Yidaki, which is actually uh, a lot of us know it's the didgeridoo, um, but they they called it the Yidaki, which is their actual name for it. And uh, they felt that it was actually kind of an invasion of, of their culture. But it's a complicated thing because at the same time, um, you know, the best, a lot of the best music has, has arisen from uh, music migrating in different ways. So, for example, you know, uh, one thing I've talked about extensively is how flamenco uh, originated from Rajasthan and picked up Moorish influences and so on. So the thing is, this idea of a cultural pr- purity is a kind of dangerous one as well. So it has to be the case that you're always um, that you're always kind of thinking about music as dynamic and tradition as dynamic. It, it doesn't need to mean to or need to be the case that tradition is is dogmatic. I, I think the migration is an important one and the idea of traveling and to go to, to really truly go places. And I, I I really deeply appreciate people who who go somewhere wanting to really learn something about another culture and then bring that back home. And of course, if my, my home is filled uh, uh, with with things that I've picked up all over the world, and hopefully I've learned from from other cultures and other people. But I feel that there's been a lot of bias in in, in the way people are portraying other cultures musically, and it's and to me, music is the ultimate expression of of empathy in the human soul. And when that stuff gets commodified and turned into cliches, then I feel that we're doing quite a big disservice. Uh, to I think though that anybody's anybody's expression is valid you know and and I think it's a complicated like I said it's a complicated area because at the same time if you have an interest in other cultures and you want to learn about something else and you it's very difficult for you to get to be able to do that easily then I think there's nothing wrong with with investigating in your own way and trying to discover what you can of something else and I preferred that to people who are very parochially minded and kind of stay in one box and and or bubble and never come out of that. Mm. Um, so I kind of think it's it's yes, it's important to be respectful, but at the same time, like I said, every tradition is dynamic, um, every way of thinking is dynamic, and and so it's um, you know it's it's important to be respectful and to do things with respect and consideration, um, but at the same time, it's also important to to try to find ways of growing and to to not feel that you're constrained by your own upbringing or your own heritage or your own national boundaries and so i think um you know it's it's a very it's it's very much about a sensitivity in which you with which you actually kind of absorb other information from around the world um, you know, it's kind of, you, you can't learn every single culture. You, you can't possibly do that. You can't possibly learn about every single tradition. But what you can do is you can have a sense of other traditions and maybe have an influence from other traditions and see what um, what happens, you know, when you do that. I mean, for myself, for example, I'll decontextualize Indian classical music and I'll, I'll put it next, you know, with drum and bass. Now, some people may find that offensive. Some people may think of, you know, certain music in a religious context, and they may find it, uh, you know, quite blasphemous that I'm doing something like that. Um, you know, so it's, it's a very, very tricky area. And you have to, you can't, you can't keep everyone happy. 
Um, but I think as as long as you're doing everything you do with as much integrity as possible and as and with as much respect for others as you can, as you can, then I think there's nothing wrong with trying to experiment and and look at different ways of thinking. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. I'm actually very passionate about this myself. I think that something that we tend to forget in our society and society today is that um, culture has always been a melting pot. We, you know, as humanity, we have always kind of been surrounded by other cultures in every single culture that like a human has ever grown up in. There is no real isolation. So what happens is that, um, you know, as we exist and as time passes, we do, we bump into our cultural neighbors, into geographic neighbors, and we kind of have this, like this rubbing against, and we take things from there and we, you know, they take things from there and then, you know, families mix and cultural traditions that are fundamentally mixed come into play so really yeah but then the the complexity of it as as york has already mentioned is is the concept of cultural appropriation and i think um you know the first way in which i came across this idea uh, or thought about this extensively was when i read orientalism from edward said and I kind of think, you know, the fact that this concept of exoticization, you know, and and kind of um, in a way kind of like cliches and tropes which are actually based on ignorance are very dangerous and they can create stereotypes and they can create uh, condescension towards another culture or other ways of thinking. And that's where it's important to have a sensitivity and arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can and and also to try your very best to to engage with people you know from from whose culture you may be taking an idea or taking an influence even um because i think then at least you are uh you're showing some kind of a symbiotic relationship rather than just literally just saying i'm going to take this and i have no respect for for the origin of where it, of, of where i've taken it from so i think it's it's about kind of that fine balance of thinking about um, how you respect other people and you don't exoticize other people by just simply uh, by oversimplifying what they what their tradition is in and decontextualizing it in a way that's disrespectful. But but at the same time, you know, you want to be true to the idea of growing and trying out different things and experimentation. I think all of that is healthy. You know, I just want to touch on exoticization there. So like I'm I'm thinking with my anthropologist hat on here. Um, you know, obviously cultural sensitivity and navigating, um, engaging with other cultures and taking things back is kind of the central concern and debate within anthropology. And it it is a balance because we absolutely do need to avoid the exoticization of people who are unfamiliar to us and cultures who are unfamiliar to us. But it is also quite important to not exoticize in the other direction in terms of um, kind of 
framing this almost like false sanctity around people and saying they're different to us. Therefore, we should not touch anything that, you know, is kind of separated by that cultural boundary mm-hmm. because it is not ours to take. Mm-hmm. So we do absolutely, as a society, have to be careful that we don't go in the other direction. I think we're really, um, as an, a very international society these days and in an international culture where we grow up with all sorts of influences from all sorts of places because our geographical boundaries have never been more blurred and cultural boundaries have never been more blurred. Um, we do kind of, we grow up with quite a few more cultural influences than we may ordinarily. And it can be difficult to navigate um, what what is authentic to you. Like, where do we draw the line? So it's perhaps music. So, if, I mean, to me, music was always the most universal of languages because it's the one that... Um, that every culture speaks in its own way, but also it's one that is not, um, it is not dependent on an education, a quote unquote higher education um, to understand you, you know, you can, it doesn't matter where you travel when you hear music, you know, it's music and um, it makes you feel something potentially. It makes you move to it even. Um, So perhaps, could we say that perhaps music is well always has been, but perhaps it's the place where w- in this world where there's so much separation, so much segregation, um, so much binary thinking, is music perhaps the um, the one universal language that we all speak and perhaps the first place where we can find each other, find community and really unity in again, do you think? I think that music definitely is a universal language. I've always said this, and it's uh, and there's lots of evidence uh, of that. I mean, you know, the uh, I mean, actually, music originated with animals, um, and and looking at sounds, or even you can even have the geophony of sound. You know, the the sounds are all around us: the sound of the waves, the sounds of of rain, and so on, as well as the um, as well as the animal kingdom. You know, with birds and how they communicate with each other. Uh, you know, animals use um, use sound for communication, survival, reproduction, and so on. Whereas actually, um, you know, human beings organize sound in, in order to derive pleasure from, from that. But, um, but actually, I think there are lots of examples of how animals can actually also derive pleasure. You have beat entrainment with certain animals as well. So it's kind of, it's, it's a very, it, it's not even exclusive to us as a species. Um, but it's, it's also interesting in that, um, Music is uh, is the great communicator and the great leveler in lots of different different ways because I think uh, music music is um, you know if I, I remember many years ago going into one particular place in South Africa where I was told it was quite dangerous to walk into that area and I walked in with quite an open mind and before I I knew it within a couple of minutes I was jamming with local people there playing drums you know hand drums and they were all jamming with me and laughing and and bringing me food and drink and saying you play like a local and it was really lovely and I had a great great um, feeling from that and um and I think that's that's the thing, you know. It kind of it really brought uh, took away any kind of sense of 
barriers between us that might might have arisen from trying to trying to communicate verbally. Um, but I think um, you know beyond that, it's it's also something that I think is you know music. We cannot commun- communicate with just each other, but we're also communing with the universe. I mean, there's lots of evidence of that. With um, you know John Coltrane said improvisation was like a bird that you catch in the air. Um, you know, it's it's kind of uh, Ravi Shankar Panditji Ravi Shankar said uh, that the um, the the rag uh, he was like a medium for which through which the rag would manifest itself. Um, Beethoven, even when he was totally deaf, he wrote down lots of um, lots of ideas about the ether and and lots of things in 1816 when he was kind of looking at all of these kinds of ideas of how he could approach music beyond sound because he was totally deaf by then. So he was actually his influences were coming from an internal communion with the universe. You know, and I kind of think that you're finding something around you. Music uh, can genuinely transcend sound, and I think Beethoven proved that. You know, music in in a way is actually about vibration. It's a, you know that's what Pythagoras talked about originally in terms of strings and how how the first kind of ideas of of uh, within the West of how um, music was born came from Pythagoras's discoveries with the the different ratios and intervals with with strings. So it's kind of it was all it all started from vibrations, you know. And and if you go further back, you look at um, you know certain cultures, African cultures, where they would have ancient flutes that actually were were trying to imitate the sound of birds so it's kind of it's about how we engage with everything around us and music is a great way to um to really find your place in the universe and find your place within any given environment it's interesting with uh, my wife we've been working on a film for the last few years which we actually finally shot this summer uh, based on Schubert's Winterreise on Winter's Journey, essentially, well, that's the type, that's the English title of the film, and and we're telling a story in twenty four songs and twenty four continuous shots with no dialogue. So it's with John Balkovich and a bunch of other people in the cast. It's going to come out in two thousand twenty four. And what's been really really interesting working on that is is actually by by re- removing any dialogue whatsoever we've we've actually returned to what cinema is it's an audiovisual medium it's once you get rid of the blah blah you know realize oh my god i can we can tell the story visually purely through movement and sound and music and it's so powerful to see something um, done non-verbally through music. I, I, to me, that's cinema. I mean, to, <laughs> and uh, we, we again, we, we're talking a lot about returning to roots. It's funny, like your musical journey when you're describing how your mother was playing, you know, um, Indian traditional songs, for instance, and and uh, and folk music. If you listen to it, and also like, and the fact that you've gone through the spectrum of classical music across, you know, pop and rock, et cetera. And then also then started implementing and blending with electronica. And then we look at drum and bass and tribal and all the other sort of different genres that are coming back. Now we let, we are starting to make folk music again. We're starting to make, we're, we're, we're returning to our, to our roots, to our musical roots, where we were actually wanting to make people dance and unite to the drum of, to the beat of a drum. And I think it's, 
it's a I, I I find so much that there's I'm, I've been listening to a lot of electronic jazz lately and a lot of uh, where where you know you've got you know analog instruments and digital working together bands like the Comet is coming and Soccer '96 and and etc and others and it's just it feels really good. I feel that music is the is my sort of go to place right now to feel that humans still have soul. You know. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's uh, it it happens in the world of electronica in terms of dance and so on. Dance is a fundamental thing that unites us as well. Um, you know, I've I've worked extensively with dancers like Akram Khan and um, and uh, Sidi Labi Cherokee and lots of different people who who actually are looking at the way in which they move uh, to music, um, but also can express uh, quite complex ideas through doing that uh, in quite an abstract way. But then I also think, um, you know, that music works um, in terms of coming back to a sense of beauty and grace. You know, I mean, for example, I mean, in recent times when we've had so much, uh, so much political uh, noise, um, that is invading every aspect of how we think and how we uh, how we try to live our lives. Um, it's fantastic when you can go to a concert and just listen to the simple beauty of somebody playing the piano. Um, I went to a Ludovico uh, Einaudi uh, concert, piano concert, just uh, and it's 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 very simple. His his lines are very simple in a lot of ways, but they're actually. They have a, a a very simple beauty to them, and I was uh, the the pianist was so engaged, and it was amazing to me. You know, there was a queue right right round the corner, and this is just to listen to somebody playing piano uh, with a candlelit. It was a candlelit kind of cathedral, um, and I thought it was a fantastic place because it felt uh, to to listen to music because it just felt like there's a real sense of community and people really wanting to be. Um, together appreciating something that's beautiful and i think um i think at the moment there's a lot of that because we we have a lot of ugliness that's pushed at us all the time uh, in terms of attitudes uh ways of thinking um people hate speech is everywhere it's ubiquitous and it's almost i i do worry about children what they're being exposed to right now um across social media platforms across the media across the political spectrum um, you know, I don't understand how a parent can feel uh, like they can responsibly bring up a kid at the moment in, in this world uh, without actually having to sh- find ways to shut out a lot of that noise. Um, so it's great when music actually um, enters people's lives um, because I think music is actually something where you can really find a connection to your own soul as well as the souls of others. It's funny, we were just talking about um <laughs> and when we met in Cologne uh, in October, in August, uh, and at this big game convention with two hundred and sixty-five thousand people attending, and Cologne, which I've known since I was a kid, um, has turned quite dark and dirty over recent years. Maybe it's due to the economic crisis, um, but it very much felt a bit like to me, like a you know, you know, when you when your cat no longer washes, you know it's ill. It felt <laughs> a bit like that. Really did. Um, <laughs> and I'm saying this uh, the same uh, week uh, that uh, and Chad, by the way, I've told you this, but I, my cat had fleas this week, so that was. Uh, I know you've my experienced cat that. Has fleas right now. It's terrible. Oh my god! Where do they get these things from? But anyway, um, 
but uh, but there was we were at this loud conference and it was all content and video games and AAA video games and Call of Duties and this and that and um, and mostly you know as you you've worked with the game industry you know like eighty percent white male uh, industry I would say still to this day and so I've coined a phrase for it now which is white noise. Um, it is, it's just what everyone's shouting. Everyone's using this nonsensical content term all the time. No one's talking about anything. It's just, and so disrupting that with beauty and actually reminding people of, you know, what life is about is so essential, uh, I feel. And you do that, um, not just through music, but also the way you communicate on, on Twitter, etc., where you're trying to, you're you're trying, and you certainly are bursting through. But what other methods can you think of? What can we do to like? Because yeah, it is dark for our kids right now, raising our kids in this. Like what? But 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 clearly, well, but there must be a way for us to to win this battle, don't you think? I mean, what I try to do is I I engage with people who are who are also trying to shut out noise, but also trying to help others. You know, I mean, I think it's important to to fill your life with selfless people as much as you can, because um, because actually uh, those people I find are really inspiring. Um, you know, I find myself working a lot more over time with charities and, and organizations that are trying to help in a practical sense, um, you know, and uh, when, when there are tragedies in other parts of the world and so on. Um, and I think you know, uh, I've I've been very lucky in meeting some incredible people like that. Um, but also, you know, even the debates and discussions um, that you end up having are so much more uh, thought provoking and real, and feel like they're they're moving they're moving you in a direction where you you feel you can do something. You don't feel so powerless. I mean, this is the thing. Um, the other day, um, you know, I. I was at a, uh, at a kind of, I th- I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was something like Peace Not War um, organization, which uh, where I was uh, uh, sitting with Brian Eno and Peter Gabriel. And, you know, it was great because, you know, they were contributing very, without, you know, without making any big fuss about it. They were, they were you know, um, giving money for, for, for this charity very freely and, um, and in not a way that was drawing attention to themselves. And I, I really respect people who are, who just get on with the whole thing of trying to help, you know, other people and, and not living a life that is self-obsessed, you know? And I, th- I think that's the thing really, it's just to, just to recognize that we are part of a of a global society and that 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 if if one part of humanity is suffering then then it's then it behoves all of us to 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 have an awareness of that and to try to do something about it rather than think in this compartmentalized notion of of the idea that we are we are only responsible for people who are on this in the same geographical boundaries as we are it's very important to transcend that kind of concept and nationalism and to look at humanity and kindness and compassion um, outside of this kind of political uh, dogma that we're, we're constantly 
being told to pay attention to. And I, I, I think it's uh, over time, I just find myself, um, you know, the, the music that I make and the music I want to make, um, you know, it's, it's very much a reflection of that, to be honest. You bring up an interesting point around this kind of, um, really, it's an individualist mindset versus the collectivist mindset that we do find in many other cultures. And you bring up nationalism, which is absolutely a problem. Um, I, I find it really a very disturbing concept in general, this idea that you can kind of draw a geographical line and they are your people. But we are having this increasing narrowing of focus in our society that um, is frequently you know, narrowing even smaller than nationalism into um, my family or even more and more myself. We have this kind of abandoning of responsibility that we feel toward even, you know, the people close to us. It's kind of that pull up your bootstraps mentality. We hear a lot about it, but um, it like it is very, very genuine problem and I think it's something that we do need to talk about more and we do need to look at in terms of the class divide is absolutely growing in our society right now. Um, I, I live in this strange straddled world where I grew up very poor and I also grew up with family members who are very, very wealthy. And today I, you know, I gratefully am quite stable, but I also uh, am in circles where I, uh, you know, family members make very close to kind of like six digits a month. Um, and it, it's a preposterous situation that we're in in our society today where there are unfathomably struggling people while others are legitimately making like almost $100,000 a month for um, not just, you know, very little work. But the, the thing that frightens me is that the money they're making is being given to them in response to essentially emptiness. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's internet money, it's media money, it's... Um, you know, I'm trying not to get too specific here, but it's like content. <laughs> yeah, it's content. They're, they're making this money. It's being funneled out of society and funneled toward like a handful of individuals who play video games on the internet and like post little videos sometimes. And it sits with them too. There's very little instilled kind of cultural attitude of like they're not ashamed to be making that much money they're not ashamed to sit on it and i think that is a problem in our society and i think this is this is uh, a really this touches on a very interesting area because i i kind of think i've got to the point where i no longer uh i think it's very important not to to resent other people who are a product of inherent or endemic issues that are um that have arisen from uh the way in which capitalism has been allowed to flourish unbridled 
and without any sense of kind of uh, of of kind of mitigating the craziness of capitalism um, by with compassion, with humanity, and with kindness, and with thought for for how uh, capitalism inevitably ends up increasing disparity, um, economic disparity, and increasing poverty, and so it's kind of it's very important to actually, you know, at the same time. I mean, you know, mixed economies are mixed economies that you know we we supposedly lived in, in a, live in a mixed economy, but I kind of think it's it's getting to the point where um, where it's it's deeply ironic, you know, at the at the the, the time when we need to be most um, we need to be thinking about each other and thinking about humanity as a whole that this is the time that nationalism is really flourishing, and that also um, capitalism is flourishing. I mean, this is the very time that we cannot have uh, the world being greedy, you know, when we need to try to save the planet or, or and also, um, you know, but, but in respect of what you're saying, I mean, governments need to have responsibility if, there's, if there are people in charge. And this is the problem is those people it almost invariably are looking for power and not justice for humanity or not consideration for others. And so we, we're constantly facing these same problems being recycled. Um, and, and to challenge it is very, very difficult. And I, I kind of think it's, it gets to the point where, um, where we have to look at not just you know, the, the symptoms uh, of, of what is problematic, but we have to really think about what democracy is and and what what it actually means because democracy without proper information and knowledge and guidance is extremely dangerous because um you know we, we look at this we we can end up with with crazy people running governments and they'll say well it's democratic i was elected or whatever although actually in the uk currently we we've got an unelected leader but i mean you know there are there are people who, and that's because there's a that now misinformation can thrive because the way in which information is disseminated is through um, through capitalism and through profiteering, and so the people who are the oligarchs um, are deciding are also the kingmakers. Yes, I think we had a different situation perhaps uh, at the beginning of the last century when those who'd make the most money. And we touched upon that in a, in a conversation that we had with Paris Marx, who they wrote this great book called Road to Nowhere, how Silicon Valley, what Silicon, Silicon Valley got wrong about the future of transportation. But when you take a look at how the mega rich lived originally, they wouldn't live in the cities that live outside in these big mansions outside. And they, because they had these big cars, no one else could have cars at the time and they'd travel outside and basically keep a sort of low profile in these high chateaus outside the cities. Whereas now, the way you get rich in a society which is all about clicks and attention is by making the loudest noise. So, so the people that we now elect, the people that we now elevate to the, the top echelons of society, otherwise, that the ones that gain the most attention. And I, you know, when I, when I was raised, when I've been raising my kids, you know, uh, you know, there's nothing more more annoying to observe in a toddler or a child or whatever is when they just want to get attention at all costs. You know, negative <laughs> attention at all costs. Mm -hmm. But we're all behaving like those attention-seeking toddlers now, where the what is ref referred to as content or, or how it's understood by those big data companies is that it's actually an attention-seeking data pack. 
the more attention this data pack gains, the more valid the content is. It doesn't matter how it gets the attention. It doesn't matter what the actual content of said content is, as long as it gets a lot of clicks. It's a numbers game. Absolutely. Um, you bring up something very interesting when you mentioned that um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but also who can be the loudest and who can also flaunt the most. I had an interesting situation with my son recently. He was telling me this strange story of how um, one of his YouTube heroes uh, stayed in, I think, the most expensive hotel in the world. Mr. Beast. Um, <laughs> no, but I'm sure he's done it too. Um, Beckbrew Jack, I believe. And his brother stayed in the the like cheapest hotel or something. And, you know, I, I earmarked that as a strange story and video at the time. You know, a little bit creepy that these are the metrics that they are making videos with. But then he was telling me about this, like, the world's most expensive food or something was this new video that, you know, his YouTube hero had recorded. And he was telling me about this like gold flaked, like piece of chocolate or something. It was edible gold and it was like $15,000 or maybe it was quite a bit more. I can't remember what. Um, but like, you know, my son watched that video and he contributed to the clicks and I was just, I was thinking about how disturbing it is that people are making like money hand over fist by essentially flaunting wealth. They're making money from having money that, you know, that generating clicks from going, look at all these like disgustingly lavish things I'm partaking in. This is, brings me back to what I was saying in, in that we, you know, from a very early age, I mean, the problem is I remember when I was at school and I, I remember um, being taught what the definition of economics was. And they said, it's the allocation of scarce resources to meet unlimited wants, not needs, wants. And so it was actually about the study of greed. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. It's about the study of greed, not the study of need. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of, so that's where we we focus in a way we subliminally given these messages that actually greed is good, you know, all the time that we're taught that uh, actually to be selfish is in some way going to help or benefit society. You know, they'll talk about trickle down economics when they'll talk about the, the idea that people who are, who are benefiting and, um, you know, from, from huge disparity will somehow benefit all of us. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's totally illogical. But of course, this is the way in which they will keep people uh, voting for them and keep this democracy that they, that they talk about, uh, you know, focused on recycling the same situation over and over again. And so, you know, I think social media, the way in which social media works and the way in which people, people's attitude is, is kind of um, very much about selfishness and selfies and kind of, you know, and showing off what they have and this kind of whole bling attitude and so on. It's kind of, it's all very much a product of, of that thinking which we've actually grown up with from a very early age. Yeah, absolutely. I am unsure if I've covered this on the podcast before, but uh, one of 
I, I've brought up one of my specialities is propaganda. But what is so interesting about propaganda is, well, among other things, it is kind of the the guy who wrote the book on propaganda was also the grandfather of the modern marketing industry. Lord was it Lord I believe Edward Bernays, he was oh, right, the right. one who wrote the book, but very like there was kind of a little team of the the grandfathers of marketing. So essentially they took propaganda techniques and they said, Hey, we can use this, you know, tool of mass persuasion we figured out to sell lots of things to make lots of money for ourselves. So they kind of they did some digging and they went, okay, like what what's the most efficient way to make money? We need to sell lots of units. How do we sell lots of units? Let's utilize the strategies of propaganda. So what we do is we do something like we make an in-group and an out-group. There are people who belong and there are people who do not belong. Now like instinctively, biologically, psychologically, humans fear exile more than anything else in the world. To a human, exile is death. We do not have the the biological capabilities to survive on our own out in like the wilderness. So you know, maybe a handful of people. It's a real struggle. Um, but yeah, we are like we respond to social shame so much because. It, it's a threat of death, essentially, if we are shamed. Yeah, FOMO, FOMO is a way to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Missing out on life. But, sir, what they did was they said, okay, well, we need to make people feel like they're missing something. They need to be at threat of being in the out group, but we're going to provide them a way to enter the in group. And that's if they have our product. We have what they need to be enough, to be good enough to fit in. So what they did was they cultivated intentionally, very deeply and intentionally. Um, you know, like it really took off in the 40s and 50s, this kind of like large scale advertising campaigns for various companies. But they started doing things like, you know, coming after women, not being good enough housewives or not looking good enough. They really they were always smiling with those psyche. washing products. They were uh, always well, smiling because they finally yeah, when, were not when alone. They had it, you can go find really amusing like horrific but amusing images of like the sad illustration without the product and the happy yeah, illustration yeah. with the product. I think we still use that today. Um, so yeah, like they, it is absolutely, and as you pointed out, it, it is a cultivated um, selfishness. It is, this is not, you know, by accident, this turn toward individualism and, um, you know, kind of climbing over other people to claim that which should be ours. It is absolutely by design. It is a deep product of capitalism. One one thing that I that, that I find in music, to me, it's my my most spiritual zone. It's the place where I've, it's it's the space in which I find something akin to religion maybe or the way i would and, and you know and this is the one thing that i that i enjoy like visiting other cultures i would go to if, if allowed to their sort of places where um you know the spiritual or religious practices are held and try to listen to how they do music there how do they try to 
inspire or talk to people's soul. You know, I have I have deep problems with organized religion, speaking of propaganda, and and also speaking of money and greed and uh, and and also ruling by fear and all the other stuff that a lot of our religions have done. But the thing that is quite interesting to me is that you know at some point. Uh, a couple of centuries ago, mainly, uh, uh, people decided that perhaps church and state should be separated because, you know, it's kind of silly to, you know, to make everyone believe in the same thing. And also, like, you know, we, there was a growing number of the population that said, well, hang on a second, I believe in this God you're talking about and stuff. And why should you make public policy based on that? So very quickly at that point, people decided, well, we need a new God. We need a new religion so that we can base all of the bullshit around. And that's going to be money because money is agnostic everyone believes in it we can all make we can all gather behind this concept so let's do that what's really kind of funny to me is that money exists even less than god does you know for those that it's it's because in a country like america which is like 200 trillion dollars in debt or whatever and it still calls itself the world leader um but hang on you guys have less money than we do over here and if you're and if everything is based around capitalism money then technically shouldn't you be the world's poorest country the least powerful i i'm i don't understand anymore how we still believe in this god called money the power of propaganda that they like people make real with words if you can convince enough people to simply believe your assertions that that is reality. Like we collectively shape reality as societies in what beliefs we simply choose to accept, whether that is, you know, faith, religion, um, you know, the great God, dollar, whatever it is, we, you know, it, it's what we live and die in is the narrative that we collectively agree to abide by. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about, York, I mean, the idea of the gold standard was abandoned a long time ago. The idea that, you know, every dollar and in the same way uh, we used to in the UK have on every pound the the, the um, uh, bank promises to pay this uh, the, the bearer the sum of one pound in gold. And it, it was the idea that everything had some kind of tangible value to it. But now, you know, you have quantitative easing, you have the possibility of, of governments actually being able to just print up money with with no kind of sense of it meaning anything or, or actually, um, you know, as you said, being in debt hugely uh, as, a, as a nation, you can have that. Um, and yet, you know, economies are still working, and they work on the basis of um, of belief. You know, it's as you said, it's it's a new faith. It's this concept that actually somehow the economy will work itself out. I mean, look at what happened with the banking crisis. Um, socialism basically bailed out capitalism. They had to they had to effectively nationalize the banks in order to keep them going because you know it was it was dying capitalism was if it had been left to itself would have died at that point if it worked by its own rules which is that you know the the fittest survive they were no longer fit the banks were going to die so we, we you know the, the governments had to bail them out effectively we've seen capitalism fail right in front of our own eyes um, not only in terms of uh, the banks themselves and and how they were going to go out of business and how they needed to be bailed out by our money you know the the money that came from the people but at the same time you know that we're seeing it fail in relation to 
uh, in t- terms of destroying the the planet that we're on because we've we've got very limited time left if we uh, if we don't actually look at uh, look at eradicating the capitalist models that, that exist currently, um, you know, and that we we live by. So I kind of think it's it's just quite it's quite crazy that we still are allowing people to gaslight us into believing that money is in some way the best way to organize society because it certainly isn't anymore if it ever was. <laughs> It's funny, I was just imagining, as you were saying this, a mass grave for banks, and I just saw beautiful nature and sort of creatures coming back alive again and people hugging and dancing in the middle of it. It is um, it is crazy how we're being gaslit. And it's, it's also crazy that uh, in lieu of intent indeed on meaning you know we have people just going for attention and as we said this sort of vapid concept of 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 content because it's a beautiful way of making everyone behave everyone behave like an idiot um schiller also you know said a couple of centuries ago um which you know to most will read as a sort of you know cynical statement but he said uh, democracy is the dictatorship of the stupid um well, it's true that, you know, it sounds elitist, especially from someone who came from an educated background and moved in educated circles and very often also in, you know, barons and you know, counts, et cetera, that he performed music with and too. But uh, I think he saw how those people were behaving around him. He saw that they would rather that the population be stupid and sure, we'll gradually allow this little subpopulation to vote and we'll allow this person to speak up a little bit. But as long as we limit the way they think, as long as we make them feel othered, as long as they, they as long as we only make them get attention as opposed to say anything of value, then we can get them to do whatever they want, like Brexit be an example, Trump, etc. Um, do you think that how do we how can we infuse meaning into society through music can we can can we do i mean can we do projects in which we actually do what you what you experienced yourself going to africa where you felt uh, to a certain place where you were told it will be dangerous but in doing music with others like inviting people into a sort of de facto sort of public space and actually enjoy humanity together can we well, do that on a global scale absolutely i mean in fact something i was doing last week with um you know we had a we had the the full uh, we we basically worked with a whole load of scientists and animators and so on who who uh, created an a full film of uh, which lasted half an hour um, that was projected up in the Tower of London the other day, and, and there were a hundred thousand people a night going to see this with my music on, and it was showing, it was showing us in relation. It was called About Us, and it was showing us in relation to, uh, you know, it started from the Big Bang, and it and it kind of it was an incredible experience, um, you know, and, and very synesthetic and very powerful, um, and it was there was a real sense of people coming together, and I think. You know, one of the things uh, that they talked about was instilling a sense of awe with uh, with people, so that they feel that they are part of a, a larger universe, and that we are actually we're we're both overwhelmed by our insignificance and also in awe of how incredible 
we are as as a species and how precious life is you know and i think it's those kinds of events where where music can celebrate all of that where i feel increasingly drawn to 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 kind of participating and and thinking about that and i felt very proud of um of of the fact that you know people were listening to music on such a big scale because it was huge speakers and it was it was a massive event and and people were just coming and it was a free event and uh, and people were you know bringing their kids and so on and chatting to each other and smiling a lot and just genuinely quite, you know talking a lot about how much they were enjoying the event afterwards um, but I think it's more than anything it kind of gives people something to think about at the same time um, as as enjoying the, each other's company and celebrating the the achievements of humanity. In one way, I kind of also think it's important that we, whilst celebrating nature, also celebrate human achievement. You know, and and I, I remember reading uh, in uh, that, that book that everyone reads at school, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I remember reading that book, and uh, there was one. Uh, phrase in there where he said buddha is not to be found only in the petals of a flower but also the console of a computer and this idea that he was talking about how beauty um you know uh, and uh, spirituality uh, is kind of intrinsic to everything and how you can find that within everything and i think this is something that music you know it's not about sort of necessarily creating music that feels calm and tranquil and peaceful all the time it's actually about music that can be visceral it can be powerful it can be electronica as well as classical music it can be you know there can be so many ways of listening to music and all of it can actually enrich our souls and spirits and you know i think that's very important that we don't just think oh well there's some types of music that are perhaps less worthy of of listening to <laughs> because they you know i think i think music as a whole is is something that we benefit from in so many different ways. Mm, I was thinking as you were talking about connection that mm. um, a week or two ago, I was invited to a very heavy screamer concert. And I, you know, I'm a screamo adjacent girl. I like a, a good scream on the chorus line, maybe not the whole thing, but you know, so it's, it was a decent amount heavier than I normally listen to. <laughs> and it was a solid three or four hours of it. But, you know, when I showed up, I was I was there. I braved the mosh pit for about five seconds. Um, but I just, I remember kind of standing back and observing and feeling and just, you know, just really absorbing that in that moment. I was just part of something bigger, like the, the thud of the instruments and the screams in my chest and like people singing along and you know it it felt like a very spiritual experience and you know human expression is vast and all of it is beautiful in its own way i also love what nitin just said uh in addition to that about and to build on what you're saying about the idea that we shouldn't separate nature from us. Like we we are of nature. We come from nature. But the thing that makes us, and, and a lot of people see them as other nature. They think, oh, this, is, this doesn't concern me. I've got my artificial environment in which I live and I've got my virtual reality. But I think a thought that just came to me bizarrely, I don't know how that happened, but because I was thinking about ants and workers and how how very much our life can be reduced to that, so to speak, or perhaps uh, 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 elevated to that of an ant. But 
but that, but what makes us different is that we're we're simulants. You know, we we like to we we can we can simulate both reality. We can create realities for each other with through narrative, through stories, through virtual worlds, through music, indeed, that transports us into something other or perhaps something that is indeed natural. But also, since we can imitate realities, we can also imit Im imitate all sorts of behaviors that nature has in itself, and which itself doesn't want to reduce itself to. A cat will not want to uh, act necessarily like uh, like its own predator. We are capable of doing that. We can be our own predators. Um, we can also act like our own a, a cancer on our own society because we like to simulate that as well. We are deeply empathic and also we also like to sim simulate and psychopathic. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that was just the thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting ending that whole thing with the word psychopathic because <laughs> I kind of think there's a lot of that going on right now. I mean, it's, 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 it's very difficult because, like I said, there is a reticence to engage with or, or to create rules um, for people to live by. But laws, I think, you know, laws which are actually about human rights and which are about humanity and which are preserving uh, basic fundamental um, ways of, of uh, allowing people to live a life of peace and and not uh, and not to have their lives interfered with in a way that is exploitative or aggressive or hateful um that's really important and i think you know it's it, we we kind of have we can't entrust psychopaths with those rights because you know that those rights should be fundamental to us and we have we're constantly empowering psychopaths. I mean, yeah, if you look across the world, this is happening increasingly. And this is the byproduct of, uh, of the way in which we are. Um, we, we look at, look at society competitively, you know, and, and the, the problem is as opposed to support being, you know, thinking mutually in a mutually supportive way and thinking about compassion and kindness in everything you do, you know, we're taught to feel competitive or to 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 achieve goals that that may mean that other you have to you have to make another person a loser or you have to make another person uh, disempowered in order to Zero achieve what you need to game. And this is this is what happens all the time. You know, and this is how we're educated. You know, we're not educated to meditate or to do yoga or to do. We're we're taught to play games that you know it, that may seem quite innocuous at the time. But actually, those games uh, really are already embedding within us this kind of notion that we need to be better than the person next to us, um, as opposed to supportive of the person next That's to us. That's really interesting, the fact that you're using the term games, because you're talking to two game makers here, and you yourself have also worked on games and great games, like Enslave, for instance. Um, and... Uh, the idea is, I mean, everything is gamified now. All of society is working with these sort of metrics. Um, in a person interpersonal relationship, the one thing you never want to do with one another is to play games, right? I mean, that's, that's like what? That's the most toxic way of being with someone else. Um, and yet we've normalized doing that on a sort of societal 
and what they like to call community level, right? Ah, we're building communities. But allow me to just say something about this very quickly, because I think it's about the attitude with which you play games. I mean, for example, you know, uh, I think it's, I mean, I, I do martial arts and, and you know, I'll be with um, my trainer, um, you know, and, and we, there's no aggression at all. It's it's purely as a sport and an exercise and we're mutually respectful and we're always you know, he's always looking at my technique and, and, and so on. And we're chatting in this way. And I've, I've, you know, if I play chess, which I enjoy, I will be looking at the situation on the chessboard, not how can I beat the person who's opposite me? I'll think, how do I, how do I achieve what I want to? Um, but you know, I'm, I'm interested in it from a kind of technical perspective. And I find that the challenge. I find that interesting. I'm not trying to beat anyone. I'm not trying to put anyone down. And it's interesting this with gaming because I mean I kind of think, you know, over time I find myself much more drawn to games that are informative, educational, uh, going to be interesting for me rather than like beating someone else at something. I mean, which is what is that? I mean, that's like you know what about quick reflexes or about learning one particular set of rules better than somebody else? I mean it didn't mean anything at all. So my whole thing is like, how can you look at situations um, for, you know, from a perspective of self-improvement um, and, and not just self-improvement, but improvement of everyone who's participating and for the gain of everyone who's participating so that you walk away with a sense of common humanity and, and, and you feel as good towards each other as you did when you started. <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, he'll like our games. <laughs> yeah, I think you will. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what your games Thank are. you for just describing our ethos as game makers. <laughs> it's funny because the, the game that Chantal is making is an, is an incredibly cool game and you'll just discover it on your own. And and I'm gonna, I, I'll plug it in every episode, so I'm not going to do that now because you know, <laughs> it'd be boring. But Dark Web Streamer, when you check it out, it's incredible what she's doing. And and I think that actually is very much when I was, uh, and I thought of it earlier when you were talking about us also embracing the artificial things that we make as something valuable. Uh, like that's, it's a, that's an AI-driven title. And, uh, and it's incredible how human it feels in being AI-driven. Um, and then also, I'm making this political game called The Last Worker, which is very much a sort of attack on on the sort of Amazonification of the world. And, uh, and it's all set in this sort of massive fulfillment center the size of Manhattan. Dehumanization, dehumanization of everything. Um, but my next game, which I haven't announced yet, and by the time this episode comes out, it might have been, but uh, is actually a sports title. Um, and it's a music-driven sports title, and it's a design-driven sports title, and it's one that, in which I've built empathic design into everything. So indeed, competitive metrics are not the driving force of the game. Mm. And I think that will be a first um, for a sports game. Um, and, uh, and hopefully the game will make you want to dance and spend quality time with someone you love because um, it's one-on-one -on -one or one-with-one. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I think we'll get along.
on that one. <laughs> and actually, Anitin, I may have to come back to you on that one, and uh, and uh, we may have to collaborate on that because there will be there will be music packs. <laughs> That's very <pretty> cool. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because you know there's there's the whole there's lots of debates and controversy around the whole meta thing, and around um, you know what Oculus does and so on. Um, I mean, I. I kind of and augmented reality and what the benefits of, of that are going to be in the future, um, and how all of that works in terms of uh, changing society and what the implications are of that as well. Um, you know, from many perspectives, philosophically as well. But it's kind of, I think, from my point of view, it's like I think there are so many educational uh, possibilities that exist right now. Um, and we can really grow from the fact that, I mean, we're still fresh to, to this kind of technology. I mean, you know, computers haven't, you know, existed at any kind of serious level for that long. And so everything is really quite still very much in its infancy. You know, the games world is really young and all of this is, well, you know, uh, if we don't blow the world up soon, then you, there's a long time uh, for us <laughs> to actually explore the possibilities of all of that. But I think the the thing is by leading, and this is this is my point, is that actually AI has actually kind of brought into focus a lot of ways in which we've been running society badly. You know, the fact that there's there's a lot of debates around. Um, you know, re that the same data being used um, in order to generate new al- AI algorithms um, means that you know racism is being reproduced in in the way in which AI works and so on. And then and this is the this is the problem. So it's kind of like it's how how you transcend the mistakes we've made as as you know till now um, in the way in which we are working with new technologies that allow us to grow as a species. But what's interesting about technology because it's everywhere, and the people that created it and the cre- that designed everything around the technology being the end goal, uh, and the attention driving uh, us all to that end goal, um, you know, as a as the old saying goes, you know, to a, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and and that's and that's uh where we are like everything ha- big tech people are trying to apply their own crap to everything their tools to everything it's as if you invented fire and then decided to set everything on fire in order to prove that your stuff is valid um you know in the end everyone ends, ends up build, burning up in it so infusing the technology now seeing it as a tool rather than as the end goal is what we need to do now seeing it as an instrument that we get to use for our betterment as opposed to the thing that is incomprehensible and will usurp us all and how do we exist within that fuck that i'm not going to be under the hammer i'm going to use it when it when i need it and other than that i'm going to set it aside and live life and i think and dance hopefully um and make music and and that's that's what i love is talking to you talking to someone who's so multifaceted, multicultured, multi-talented, um, is that uh, you remind us of the fact that everything is valid as long as it has respect and meaning and intent behind it that's, that's good and about communicating, collaborating, and just being good to each other uh, and not playing games against, but playing games with each other, not... Not making music to drown out others, but making music with others and dance with them. 
Well, if that's what you've got from what I've said, then I'm very happy. <laughs> so yeah, that's great. It absolutely. It's what I get from everything you make. It's what, what I say, what I get from everything you say. And that's why I, it was such a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Directional is hosted by Jörg Tittle in London, Chantal Ryan in Adelaide, and produced by Paul Bennon in Los Angeles for Rapid Eye Movers. The theme song was composed by Oliver Krauss and Fralli Hines. Follow us on Twitter at Directional Show and listen to past episodes at directional.show. See you next time.